Oh, I love the sound. Well, hey, good morning, Bel Air Church. What a joy it is to be with you in worship. Missed you all last week. I was uh, camping with my dad and my oldest son out in the desert. And, uh, you know, I love how we have the opportunity, even when we're not here physically. Many people join us online uh, from not only around the U.S., but around the world. And if you ever miss a Sunday, know that you can go to our website. You can go on iTunes and uh, download this podcast. You can listen to them. You can watch them. And uh, it's just great for me to, to watch Greg Bennett. How many of you were here last week, our executive director? Wasn't that fantastic? Fantastic. You know, and uh, I had people out of that uh, sermon say, not where were you, but I heard you're going to run a 100-mile race. And it was lost in translation. Um, I get exhausted driving 100 miles. I have to pull over. And, but um, Anthony, you did run 100 miles. So, so no, come on up, come on up, come on up, come on up, come on up. Somebody carry him up. I know, you're exhausted. So now, okay, come on, come on. Yeah, here we go, here we go. Come on, come on. Okay, okay. Okay. All right, all right. Well, that's for you. So in case you're a guest, uh, we're not a church that just, like, celebrates physical accomplishments. <laughs> Though pretty impressive, dude. I mean, your goal was under 24 hours, and you did it in 23, I think, a marathon in the mud. Maybe. I didn't have a goal until he told me. <clears throat> I was at mile, I don't know, 80. And Drew said to me, you know, you could go sub 24 if you picked it up. <laughs> then it became a race. Yeah, yeah. So here's the reason why we're spending time in the midst of worship uh, together is a couple years ago, Anthony and I were running. And he shared with me, Drew, running is so selfish. And I feel like God's calling me to do something with my running. Can you say more about that? I'm going to try not to cry because, honestly, I feel like the past 24 hours since I finished, like, I cry when I brush my teeth now. <laughs> I mean, I look at my wife and I'm going to cry. So now that I said that, maybe I won't cry. Um, I was doing a race maybe about two years ago. And I was having a bad race, so I thought, because my watch told me I was having a bad race. And um, I hit this one patch. It was about 50 miles or 45 miles. And um, I came to this beautiful place. The wind was coming. The sun was setting. And God just completely stripped me of me at that point. And I felt like I, I'm so selfish with the running that I do. And I sacrifice so much of my family's time. My wife is so supportive of me and my children. And, and I literally felt God's hands come on me and put his hands on me and say, I forgive you. And at that point, I knew that if I was going to do anything with this running, that it had to be for the glory of God. And uh, saw Jay and Catherine, didn't know much, you know, of them. I knew of their, I, excuse me, I knew of their story, but I didn't know them at all. And I asked them one day, and I saw them at a party and said, can I run for you guys? And Jay's like, well, what do you mean by that? And uh, should I keep going with this or what am I? Should you keep going? 
All right, so as a side note, so Jane, Catherine, uh, members of our church family have started a, a nonprofit called Hope Heals, and they've written a book and tremendous ministry. They speak all over the U.S., and um, that's the little backstory to Jane, Catherine, but keep going. So Jay said, I don't understand. What do you mean as we're eating some chips and salsa or whatever? And I said, well, there's a trail that I've always wanted to run. It's a 68-mile trail from Will Rogers State Park to Ray Miller. I said, I would like to run it and raise money for you guys somehow. I don't know what that looks like. And Jay said, naturally, okay, I'll, I'll call you tomorrow and we'll talk about it. So he called me. We talked about it. Fast forward. We did this event. It was amazing. And um, it, raised, it raised some money for them. And that was really the goal for me. It was like, just I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just going to run. And if it raised some money to support them and their organization, like, I'm in. So we did it. It was a success, if you will. And, uh, but I felt like there was more that I wanted to do. Because like, then, then I was like, well, I don't want to race because racing is kind of lame. And I'm just doing it for myself, but yet I love to run. So Jay, hey, I think I want to run 100 miles. I've always wanted to run 100 miles. Let's Naturally, do something. Naturally, right? Naturally. <laughs> right? Yeah. He's like, okay. Well, he's like, you know, you don't have to run 100 miles. We could just kind of do something else. And I said, no, I have to run 100 miles, but we got to do this together. I don't want to do it on my own. I don't want to do it on a race. I don't want to do it for me. I want to do it for you guys, and I want to use, I just want to serve God in some fashion. So he said, all right, let's do it. And then we had to reschedule. My, uh, my wife's mom passed away, so we pushed it, um, and we just did it. So the goal not only was to run 100 miles, but it was to raise personally 10000 yeah. Dollars. Yeah. Uh, and you also gave others around the U.S. the opportunity to run their own little race, do their own little challenges. I understand 70 people right. had their own challenges, their own 100 steps or a 10K or this or that. And it went just a little above $10,000 total as of yesterday. What as of yesterday, have? I think it was a little above 10000 It was $65,000. So. Awesome. Yeah. So, so I share this moment to say this is what happens when someone says, I want to take something that I love and I want to put it in God's hands. And what was so beautiful for me, I got to, you know, I was very strategic. I joined you at mile 80. I figured you're going to be walking a lot at mile 80, so very strategic. Of me. He ran a half marathon yesterday with me. Well, so, so. But what was so beautiful is there were so many people involved uh, who had sent in videos of encouragement, and at every little aid station, I watched you uh, watch these videos that some of you sent in. And this seemingly selfish, because you would never have that in a normal race. No. Looking at videos no. of friends and family saying, I'm praying for you, go get it. Uh, you, it seemed like you received more than what you let God give through you, even in that. Yeah, I mean, I think what I take home from this, uh, or to heart, I guess, just sort of, was that I, I'm a planner, like in my job, like everything's dialed in. I plan everything. 
So I had this amazing plan, spreadsheets, here's how it's going to go, friends are going to come in here, they're going to do this, they're going to do that. And at mile three quarter of a mile, I knew this plan was not going to go as planned. <laughs> we have no rain, and we had rain. I never really run in mud um, or the wind. I saw Jane Catherine at mile 18, and she practically got blown off the mountain. Um, and at that point, God took me and he broke me and he said, your plans are not my plans, but I'm going to guide your steps. And that's what you told me just before, mm -hmm. that it's good to plan, but let God guide your steps. So I appreciate you as a, a friend yeah. telling me that because well, I took that the whole way. What an honor to know that every single one of us can experience this. We take what we love and we say, God, what do you want to do with it? So thank you for leading us in that way, brother. Okay. Love you. Love you. So proud of you. Thank you. A little foreshadow for where we're going. Why don't you grab your Bibles and open them up to Luke. Luke 9. And it's on page 842 in that Pew Bible. I'm a little sore. And I'm wondering, you know, man, how are you? Luke 9, 7 through 20. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, that red book in front of you, or if you're in the front row, a little cubby right behind your leg is a, a red pew Bible. We want you to own one. We want it to be in your life and open, speaking truth and power and grace and love into your life. So if you don't own a Bible, take that with you. It's not yours. We can replace it as quickly as you can take it. If you know people in your life that need a Bible, take this and give it to somebody else. Let me read for us Luke 9, 7 through 20. Now Herod the ruler heard about all that had taken place, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the ancient prophets had arisen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he tried to see him, this being Jesus. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all they had done. He took them with him and withdrew privately to a city called Bethsaida. When the crowds found out about it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed to be cured. The day was drawing to a close, and the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside to lodge and get provisions. For we are here in a deserted place. But he said to them, you, give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we were to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did so and made them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And all ate and were filled. What was left over was gathered up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Once when Jesus was praying alone with only the disciples near him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others, that one of the ancient prophets has arisen. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Messiah. 
of God. This, my friends, is the reading of God's Word. All right, let's leave those Bibles open. Uh, I've got three things for us to take away. There's so much. I mean, how many of you have ever heard of this, this story from Scripture where Jesus feeds thousands? Okay, very, very familiar. I ask that question because, you know, of course, every time we gather as a church, uh, there's people who've never been to church before. And so for some of us, this is the first time we've encountered this. We might say, what on earth? What is this? Well, there's three things, three things that I want us to take away today. Uh, especially as we're in the middle of this series called Meals with Jesus. Remember, uh, Jesus ate a lot of meals. And it seems like he does more teaching and performs more miracles around food or at a table than any other setting. As it's been said before, in the Gospel according to Luke, it seems like Jesus is either on his way to a meal or he's at a meal or he just left a meal, which is this beautiful, amazing thought. But three things I want us to take away are this. First of all, there's a massive lie here. Two, there's a massive responsibility here. And three, there's a massive exchange here. Let's take a look at the, the first one, the massive lie. Open those Bibles back up if you closed it. It's in verse 12, the day was drawing to a close, and the 12 came to him and said, you see, a problem had arisen. And just for context, just so you know, uh, the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to John. So four individuals who were eyewitnesses to this event wrote down what happened, and every single one of them has a particular angle to that truth. It'd be like four reporters being there and walking away and writing down what happened. And there's nuances in each of them. And Luke records this, and Mark records it, Matthew, and they all record this. And so what's happened just before that is they've experienced all these amazing things where people are being healed, people are being uh, cured of diseases, they're, they're being set free from oppression. And so they withdraw across the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is roughly the size of Washington, D.C. Uh, the Hebrew name is Kisaret, uh, which means violin. It's roughly the shape of a violin. Uh, it's the largest uh, body of water, of fresh water in Israel. It's, it's a main source of drinking water. Uh, it's where Jesus walked on water. Uh, and as they withdrew to this place called Bethsaida, a place where three disciples had actually been born, multitudes followed Jesus by foot or by boat. They wanted more of Jesus. And so a problem arises naturally that by the end of the day, thousands of people are there. And they run out of food. Uh, there's not tents or yurts or RV campers or any glamping spots. I mean, it's, there's a lot of people out in the middle of nowhere. And the disciples, the followers of Jesus, bought into a massive lie. And it's the same lie that you and I buy into pretty much every single day. And the lie is this. We... Don't have enough for them. That lie framed their worldview. It framed their response. It framed their actions. It framed their thoughts, their, their words. We don't have enough for them. There's this problem. We don't have enough, and so they've got to deal with it. They've got to go to the towns, and they've got to go to the villages, and they've got to get lodging there. They've got to get food there. We don't have enough for them, and it's a massive lie. 
when the church is the one saying we don't have enough for them. You see, human institutions, uh, when they say we don't have enough for them, it's true. There's a finite amount of food when you have just human power. Uh, there's only enough policemen, only enough firemen, only, only enough teachers. There's only enough government funds. There's only enough volunteers. Uh, there's only enough water. There's only enough food. So from a human point of view, when we say uh, we don't have enough for them, it's a natural thing to say. But when the church says it, it's a massive lie. It's a massive lie. Because the church is the only community that is organized not by humans, but by God and God alone. And what has just happened, by the way, you can look at Matthew, you can look at Mark, you can look at Luke, you can look at John. Each of the disciples has just received authority to go and to heal the sick. They've just been given the most powerful force there is. And they're experiencing just these amazing miracles. And as people are following Jesus, they just have to get close to them. They just have to get close to Jesus. They're being healed. They're being cured. They're being set free. The disciples buy into that lie. And what do they say to Jesus? Jesus, uh, the maker of heaven and earth, Jesus, the all-powerful king of kings, Jesus, God in the flesh, Jesus, the one who can raise people from the dead, Jesus, the one that just gave us authority to cast out demons, Jesus, send them away so that other people can solve the problem. They bought into the lie that God's enemy would love for us to buy into the lie that there's, oh, we don't have enough for them. And we do this all the time. We do this in the church. When we say, you know, we don't have enough staff to train the volunteers if we really ask for volunteers to get involved. Uh, we don't have enough volunteers for all the kids that could come if we invited families. Well, we, we, we don't have enough resources at church to give away to our local partners or global partners as giving has dropped. You know, we don't have enough classrooms on this campus if people really wanted to grow. We don't have enough seats. We don't have enough this. We don't have enough that. It's a lie. Do not buy into that lie. Because the moment you buy into that lie, you're actually, uh, you're paralyzed in that moment. And you're unable to be used by God. So how does Jesus respond? He doesn't, you know, warm up the backhand to, you know. Uh, he doesn't shoo them away. He doesn't say, well, I chose poorly. Let me go find another group. He doesn't do any of that. What does he do? Open those Bibles back up. Take a look at verse 13. This leads us to a massive responsibility. He says to his followers, he says to you, he says to me, he says to the church everywhere, Verse 13, he said to them, you, you give them something to eat. I want you, church, I want you to solve the problem that's here. I want you to take responsibility for the needs that you see. I want you to take ownership over being part of the solution. It was so amazing. Like you, I, you know, I, I'm so familiar with this text, and I, gosh, I've heard this story, and I've, I've, I've preached on this story of uh, this, this amazing true historical event of what happens when Jesus takes our little and, and multiplies it into a lot. I always leapfrogged over this truth. The truth is, is that he wants you to take responsibility. And not just you individually, but 
all y'all as the church. And it's as if, uh, he says, before I do anything miraculous, I first want you to say, yes, this is our problem. He doesn't leapfrog over it and just wave his hand and say, you know, a loaf of bread for you, a fish for you. He doesn't just do that for everybody, you know, presents. He doesn't do that. He doesn't just go into miracle mode without first saying to his followers, without first saying to the church, I want you first and foremost to see that I am calling you to take responsibility, to be part of the solution of all the problems in the world. There are problems of homelessness. There's refugee crisis around the world. Uh, global warming, all, all the effects of that. There's massive inequality. A recent study just came out that says after all this this movement, all this talk, that actually there's a, now a greater gap than there was four years ago about the pay between men and women. It's actually getting worse, not better. And there's people on the margins of society who are being trampled on. That there's a whole demographic of people with disabilities that we just kind of shoo off in the corner and have somebody else deal with it. And the lie is this, we don't have enough for them, and when we believe that lie, we think that it's somebody else's responsibility to meet those needs. Oh, that's the government's job. That's, that, that's nonprofit's job. That's their parents' job. That's, that's, something, that's, that's the school's job. That's always somebody else's job. And Jesus says, no. If you're my follower, I'm not going to allow you to say that. If you're just a human institution, yeah, yeah, okay, you can do that. But if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, he says, I want you collectively to meet the needs that are out there. And again, he doesn't speak in a singular sense to just one of the disciples. He says to the whole community, he says, y'all, and he's saying to all y'all, that all the problems, all the needs in this church right now can be met if, first of all, every single one of us takes responsibility for them. That all the needs, all the problems in our neighborhoods and in our city will be met if and only when all the churches in our neighborhoods and cities say we're going to take responsibility for them. A stat just came out recently that said if just every single church in Los Angeles, and I'm, tell, tell me if I get this wrong, if every single church uh, fosters one child, that we would foster all the children in the foster care system. Did I get that right? Did I get that wrong? Is that true? If every church just fostered one, did I get that right? Just one. So think about this. Jesus is saying, all y'all, there's a problem. There are people in this city that do not have parents, that do not have a family. Church, you feed them. All y'all feed them. Baylor, can we foster one child? And can we be part of a community of churches that each do that, you see? The church has bought into this lie. Well, that's somebody else's problem. You see, there's this massive lie. Uh, there's massive responsibility. But there's a massive exchange when we take responsibility. Take a look. Open those Bibles back up. It says, uh, as you finish verse 13, they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. Now, this is where it helps to read the Matthew 14 account, the Mark 6 account, the Luke 9 account, and the John 6 account. That's uh, 
the books and the chapters that reference this same event. Uh, and you begin to see that, for example, if they were to go and buy more food, uh, it says in the other accounts that that would take about a half year's worth of wages. Massive problem. Uh, big ticket item to feed all those people. Think about how much you make in a year. Not how much you report to the IRS, how much you actually make in a year. Half of that, that's how much it costs to feed the people. And by the way, uh, it's not 5,000 people. You know that, right? It's 5,000 men, which in the first century was how they counted crowds. You know the heading of this section in the New Revised Standard Version? It says the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, we've added those headings centuries after the original manuscripts. Please don't refer to it as the feeding of the 5,000. Refer to it as the feeding of at least 5,000. Because there was women and children there that in the first century they just did not count. And so some scholars say, oh, well, there, there was a woman and children there. Oh, if you look at John's account, there was a child. And you think 5,000 men and one child showed up? <laughs> Most commentators say it's, it's likely that there are 15,000 to 20,000 individuals that were hungry in that moment. So if for a moment you say, oh, gosh, you know, the problems back in the first century were just so simple. You know, the problems today, there's, there's a lot of hidden costs in the problems today. Were you even aware of the hidden costs and the, of this problem? Tens of thousands of people likely. A half year's worth of wages. And the disciples who begin to consider how they might even take responsibility for this thing, uh, they offer up five loaves and two fish, which only in the gospel according to John says, they got that from a child. And it was the child, not the disciples. It was a child who came forward and says, here's my little, my little lunch. Here's a little that I got. So, by the way, in a culture that didn't count women and children when they counted crowds, Jesus was the only rabbi that allowed women to follow him. And Jesus was the only rabbi that allowed children to be the center of a teaching. And there's no mistake in here that Jesus uses a little from the littlest person in that people group and says, ah, five loaves, two fish. The disciple says, this is all we got. This is our inadequacy. This is our inefficiency. This is our, um, our little. It's not even going to put a dent in this. This is all we got, and Jesus is perfect. Because I can do a massive exchange with your little. I can do a massive exchange with your inadequacy. I can do a massive exchange with your inefficiency, your, your lack of anything full that you think it could be. In fact, there's this great quote. A commentator said this many years ago that when we think about this idea of inadequacy, this commentator says it is God's intention that we should not be in ourselves adequate to our tasks. Rather, God wants that we should be inadequate. If we only accept the tasks which we think are adapted to our powers, we are not responding to the call of God. The church is always in a crisis. Listen to this. The church is always in a crisis and always will be. 
There will be difficulties, limitations, insoluble problems, lack of people and money, a menacing outlook, endless misunderstandings and misrepresentations. Sound familiar? We are not only to do our work despite these things, they are precisely the conditions requisite for the doing of it. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians, it is Christ's strength that's made perfect in our weakness. It's only when you realize that you're inadequate that you can finally be adequate in the hands of God. So here you've got Anthony who says, I've got this thing that I love, and I want to put it in the hands of God. I'm going to take my running, and I'm going to put it in God's hands, and look what God did to multiply that in massive ways. This is another angle. What if you were to look at all the needs and all the problems and say, God, I have no idea how we can even put a dent at this, but here's what I got. Here's what I can offer. You know, I, I've gotten some emails. I've gotten some texts. I've gotten from, uh, some anonymous notes uh, from people over the last few months who are saying, you know, gosh, you know, Drew, you're getting really political, and I don't like it. Now, let me say this. There's a difference between being political and being partisan. Jesus was never partisan, but he was very political. Let me explain. Uh, you never knew where Jesus fell in regards to what political party he supported. Simon the Zealot was somebody who was anti-government. He was against the government. He was for small government. Matthew the tax collector was for government. He worked for the government. He was all about big government. So Jesus says, perfect, follow me. Both those people were his disciples, his followers. And a lot of you have said to me, you know, I, you know I'm really confused. I don't know what party you would vote for. Good. <laughs> if you ever figure that out, then I'm not doing my job as a preacher. But Jesus was so political. The word politics comes from the Greek word politica, which is the root polis, which is the affairs of the people how people are in relationship with one another, how, how we should govern, how we should make decisions. All throughout Scripture, there's talk of what we do with people experiencing homelessness. What do we do when there's injustice? What do we do when people are overlooked? What do we do with the orphans and the widows? What do we do with this? You see, we need to be a people, and I, and I look at this, I look at this table, this, this, this communion table, uh, which in a moment we're going to partake in, we need to be a group of people that when we sit with Jesus, we say, there is hope at this table. And we can uniquely say that only when we are obedient and following Jesus, when we allow the Holy Spirit to exchange our insufficiencies for his accelerated, all-sufficient power. So when there's people living in homelessness, we need to say, there's hope. At this table, uh, when there's people who have lost their nation and have nowhere to go, we need to say as the church, there's hope at this table. When there's people who experience the abuses of power and are saying, me too, we need to say there's hope at this table. When people are experiencing inequality, when they're experiencing marginalization, when they're experiencing all the problems and all the brokenness of all the things that God never intended, we've got to say there's hope at this table. I, I love how Jürgen Moltmann, he's a German philosopher and 
student of the Bible, he says this, you know, miracles, don't think of them as a suspension of the natural order. Uh, don't think of them as kind of like the, the supernatural or kind of the undoing of the natural thing. He says, you know, you've got to realize that the miracles of Jesus are the most natural thing there is. Because God's intention for this world is that there would be no death, no cancer, no extreme hunger, no bitterness, no rage, no wars, no disability, no broken relationships, no deceit. And so from God's point of view, all of that is unnatural. And if we live in that worldview that, that God does not exist, and if we live in a worldview that we're just, you know, a cosmic accident and it's survival of the fittest and, you know, the, the, the powerful eat the weak, what courage and what motivation do we have to stand against oppression? I mean, think about that for a moment. If we, if we don't believe that there is a God that is for the reconciliation and the revival and renewal of all things, if we feel like there's not a God like that out there and we're just relying on humanity, and if we worship at the feet of Darwin, I mean, what courage, what place do we have to stand on to say that we should have a voice for the voiceless? Because that's how natural selection works. But if we believe that God is who he really says he is, if we don't believe the lie from God's enemy, if we actually take the responsibility that Jesus says, this is my calling on your life, and if we give a little into the hands of Jesus, this great massive exchange happens, and watch what happens. In your life, in those neighborhoods that you live in, in this city and in the world. You know, it's no coincidence that Jesus, he takes the bread he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. Those verbs are also used when Jesus, the night he was betrayed, takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, gives it to his disciples, and he says, take and eat. This is my body. And here's the amazing, beautiful thing of Jesus, the Messiah, our Savior, God in the flesh. He meets our temporary physical hunger, he also meets our spiritual and eternal hunger. He meets us in the temporary and the eternal. He alleviates our, our temporary needs and he alleviates our eternal needs. And he wants to do that through you. So in a moment as we come to this table, as we partake in communion as a church family, may it be strength for your soul, but may it be a motivation to be sent out in this world to be his hands and his feet. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you that you are a God that meets us where we are, that is patient with us, yet calls us to this amazing life. May we surrender to you. May we entrust you with these things that we have. Loving God, we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.